I was really bummed that I couldn't make it out to Vancouver. I was I was like on the West Coast, like an hour's flight away, and uh, my wisdom teeth just uh, decided to be assholes. Really? I thought you actually just like decided to say, screw this friendship. Oh, yeah. So it was, uh, I had a change of heart last minute. I'm like, screw that guy. Exactly. That's what I thought. So I I was sad. I spent thousands of dollars to fly out this way. And the the ultimate uh, uh, screw you would be to uh, fly back to Toronto before we even uh, get to record an episode. Yeah. I mean, I was wondering for a week what the hell I did wrong to you. (laughs) Uh, no, so it was like landed in Portland for a vacation and, uh, the, the teeth just decided, oh, we're just going to get crazy inflamed. And I wasn't even sure at the time that it was the teeth. Like, uh, for all I knew, it was just like my jaw decided to lock up out of stress or something, you know? And, uh, but it just didn't get any better over the course of the time I was in Oregon. And it got to the point where like the day before I was supposed to fly to Vancouver, I was just in my hotel room, like I couldn't move. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> no, but we'll, uh, I'll try to try to get out there uh, a couple months from now and, uh, we will finally do the in-person episode that, uh, we've been, uh, promising the viewership for a long time. <laughs> Maybe we'll actually record it like on video just so we have proof. Yeah, exactly. Just, uh, you know, the, uh, for those doubters out there. I was just going to say, you kind of missed out on, on Vif, but I, I think, I don't think you missed a whole lot. No, cause this year. cause I, I sounds like you, uh, you saw a couple of things, uh, but I, I saw that you, you rated like the Kira Knightley film Colette, like three stars out of five or something on Letterboxd. Yeah. But maybe we, we can get into that because we have, I haven't even talked about uh, Tiff at all yet either. So, oh, that's true. Okay. Let's start the show. Welcome to episode 37 of the Extra Buttery Podcast. Back after a few weeks break and a little bit of uh, recovery on my part, but uh, we are back with some discussion of the various film festivals that Jason and I have uh, been attending over the past month or so. And we'll get into maybe a bit of discussion over uh, the new Netflix show Maniac, uh, which I watched uh, all the way through during my recovery. <laughs> and uh, I might it might touch on a little a little thing that's been bugging me recently uh, with regard to Netflix and uh, the way they've been operating on the festival scene, uh, which I I teased in the, the end of the last episode. I want to make good on that. But coming to you from Toronto, my name is Robert Snow, and joining me from Vancouver is my co-host Jason Chen. How's it going? Good. I'm wisdom teeth free, so... Yeah, when did you get yours out? Uh, sometime in high school. Oh, yeah? They were like a problem and your dentist said these have got to go? Uh, they were going to be a problem. So, yeah. So, my, my jaw is like too small for the wisdom teeth coming in. Right. And they were like coming in sideways. Oh, yeah. That's pretty common. Yeah. And then so, when they took the x-ray too, they found like another tooth, like like another tooth after my adult teeth in my like chin. Oh, it's weird. like a third generation tooth kind of like i was like a shark basically so they had to like lift up my tongue and then cut it oh and then and then take the tooth out from there yikes man yeah but here hey i didn't take a single painkiller oh brave that is brave did are you on painkillers? Well, I mean, like Tylenol, just to just until my jaw. Uh, uh, I did like, and here's the thing: I haven't even had mine my teeth out yet. Oh, what? Yeah. So like th- this whole time, it's been just inflammation back there where the teeth are, 
And the dentist looked at me like the day after I flew back to Toronto and uh, he was like, yeah, we can't even open your jaw without like hurting it. So we're just going to put you on antibiotics, knock down the inflammation, uh, give you like simple painkillers because, you know, there's nothing, there's no reason why the teeth have to come out right away. They're just uh, giving you a lot of pain. And, oh, uh, I thought you had, you had it uh, taken out. No, that's the thing. Like, I, I assumed that they had to be taken out right away because that's how much pain I was in. But it was just inflammation. And uh, yeah, so it, anyway, the, the pain has been uh, under control. And like, I barely need any any pills or anything, just the antibiotics. Uh, but see, then when I, you get them out and you get the painkillers, that's a good time to start watching bad movies. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you're so out of it that like every bad movie is probably hilarious to you yeah yeah uh no so uh, compared to like you know i'm sure i'll i'll go through that and then in the next month or two when i actually get them out for real but uh uh but yeah the uh this this one recovery from this this little flare-up did give me a chance to uh to tackle uh this new netflix show uh, maniac which I, I think i binged in an entire day my head doesn't work right I thought maybe these people could fix me. Sounds stupid. That doesn't sound stupid to me. Okay, people, let's begin. In five, four, three, two, one. My mind is playing tricks. I've done that before. I did that with uh, Stranger Things. Oh yeah, and and you know these these Netflix originals that are you know ten or twelve episodes. You know it's it's actually pretty easy to to knock them out in a day if you're not doing anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Did you uh, did you see any part of it of this one yet? The one with uh, Emma Stone and uh, Jonah Hill? No, I have not. I highly recommend it. It uh, oh yeah yeah it's uh, it's the entire uh, series, every episode is directed by uh, Kari Joji uh, Fukunaga from True Detective. I don't know what it's based on, like source material wise, but I feel I think uh, Fukunaga developed it as a as a project of his own. Like he was the producer on it as well, um, and it essentially it uh, follows Emma Stone mm-hmm. and Jonah Hill's characters, who are strangers to each other. Um, both young people with uh, different kind of psychological problems. Emma Stone is kind of strange from her dad a little bit, um, kind of living on her own with a bunch of roommates in New York. And she's evidently got some sort of like personality disorder or something like that, a history of a really bad uh, fight with her sister in her past. Uh, Meanwhile, Jonah Hill's character is the fifth son of a wealthy industrialist family in New York. Mm -hmm. He's kind of looked down upon by everyone in his family, the black sheep. Um, Mm -hmm. He had a uh, uh, some sort of like psychological break at some point in his like uh, teenage years. That is like the one time that his uh, disease got out of control. Um, But other than that, he's he's just pretty like low-key, kind of monotone, and uh, kind of grappling with seeing things that aren't really there. So uh, both of these characters end up in a kind of next-level drug trial by this mysterious company. And the drug trial is actually led by a a, a kind of visionary scientist uh, played by Justin Thoreau. And it's this the the series descends as the drug trial begins into this world of shared dreams and uh, alternate dimensions and cosmic connections. Um, so it's uh, it sounds crazy, yeah, and it's beautifully shot. The cinematography will just knock you down. 
Um, Fukunaga was, I can't remember the DP that uh, Fukunaga worked with, but it's worth watching for the visuals alone. Um, not to mention all of the uh, hilarious characters that uh, Jonah Hill and Emma Stone end up are versions of their characters that Emma Stone and uh, Jonah Hill end up playing in their various dream states. Uh, uh-huh. And uh, the production design is also really fascinating. They're kind of presenting the world of the show as being kind of a uh, alternate version of our own. You know, there's just subtle differences and maybe some not so subtle differences that uh, kind of make it a bit like a dystopia, but very so kind of like Black Mirror, Black Mirror ish. Yeah. So just like you know, the on the on the whole, the world looks the same as ours, but uh, there's slightly dystopian touches in the background that uh, that kind of draw your eye and uh, make and kind of make you go, "Ooh, okay, that's kind of a, a weird change from uh, from real life." <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, but I highly recommend it. I mean, whether you go through it all in a day like I did, uh, very, very irresponsibly, um, it basically plays like a giant movie in that in that uh, fashion. Or you can kind of uh, knock episodes out one after the other. Um, but yeah, it uh, it's definitely worth it. I, it's a limited series, so they won't be doing like uh, a new season. It's kind of a one off, just the uh, that one block of episodes, which uh, I that's good I kind of like. You know, it's uh, yeah. Uh, there's been a few shows like that on Netflix over the past couple of years. Another uh, one that I watched uh, was uh, this one with uh, Jeff Daniels and Michelle Dockery is a Western show. Right. But tell me a little bit about uh, about Viff, because uh, you, oh. you, you <laughs> definitely how many films did you end up catching there? OK, so I've caught four so far, but I have quite a few more to go. Um, we were kind of right in the, like the smack dab middle of it. Um, I'm taking a break today, obviously, um, because I learned my lesson last year when I went gung-ho, too gung-ho. How many did you do in a, in a day last, uh, like what was your max in a day? The max I can do is two. I, I, I can't do three. Like three, two melts my brain already, and we'll get to that later, but three, three is just ridiculous. And, and plus, I don't have that much time in the day <laughs> yeah. unless it's a weekend, and usually... I think the selection at VIF can be limited at times if you're looking for certain films. Mm-hmm. So even then, like trying to get three in a day is hard because there might not be three films in a day that I want to see. Right. I have noticed that though recently, like film festival films have gotten longer. And so it's very hard for me to sit through even two movies now sometimes. Yeah, because it adds up to, um, what, like, five hours overall? Basically, yeah. And some of these venues aren't very comfortable. They, they don't necessarily start on time. The crowd kind of drives me crazy with how much they clap. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, two is the most I can do. I haven't had any... I haven't scheduled any, like, two-a-days this year. And so that's kind of worked out pretty good for me because I've still managed to get tickets to all the movies I wanted to go see. There is a documentary about Big Country, the basketball player, the former Vancouver Grizzly that I uh, unfortunately did not get tickets to, but that was kind of a late addition to the festival. The VIF isn't like TIFF. VIF is not, it's not an A-list film festival, so everything's kind of like off the cuff. But uh, anyway, on to the films. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> the the one that I saw you post about on uh, Letterboxd was this one, uh, Colette, with uh, Kira Knightley and um, Dominic West. Yes. You've married a literary entrepreneur. You've married a country girl without a penny to her name. We're doomed, aren't we? Willie is a brand. I take all the risk and there's still no money. We need more output. You, you could write. It's like a, one of one of Kira Knightley's many period films. I was about to say, like, 
I almost didn't want to watch this because I am not a, the biggest fan of period films, especially English period films, even though Colette's about a French lady, actually. But I was kind of curious because everyone said Kira Knightley was good. And it's about this author named Colette, obviously, who is a very famous French author who kind of like um, in Amy Adams and Big Eyes was kind of the ghostwriter for her husband. And her husband basically ended up taking all the credit, um, basically becoming a slave driver, making her write all the time. She ends up developing a lesbian relationship with another woman. And, uh, yeah, basically that's the, just the movie. It's a pretty straightforward biopic. I have noticed this year that like a lot of period films have lesbian relationships in them. I I have no idea why, but it seems just like a common thread between this and the favorite. But yes, it's a, I gave it three out of five, as you mentioned, because it's a very straightforward biopic. I I thought Kira Knightley was okay. I I think she's at her best when she's like, bitching about something <laughs> yeah she throws yeah. really good hissy fits Dominic west has the meatiest role character wise in my opinion but he i i don't think he's i don't think he was right for that role a lot of the secondary characters aren't very well developed um they're not very interesting certain things are just kind of glossed over it, it, its pacing is a little poor so generally speaking, I, I didn't enjoy it that much. It's an okay film, though. Like, if you're into that period and into that kind of story, I, I, I think it's a passable movie. There are certain moments in there that are kind of entertaining. Right. Yeah, that's sort of what I expected just from the uh, the, the couple of stills that I saw and, and that kind of thing. Like, that, right. it's, uh, it's kind of catering to a particular audience. Yes, yes, 100%. And, and I do feel like Kira Knightley's really pigeonholed herself as a period actress yeah unfortunately so i mean she's she's played around with like contemporary roles uh she, there was that a little um, bit yeah you know she did the, that one she did with uh, i know you hate mark ruffalo but um yeah she did <laughs> she did this movie in 2014 uh called uh, begin again uh, okay that it, she plays this uh folk singer in new york and it's contemporary new york and she sort of uh becomes the new muse for a uh, down on his luck record producer played by mark ruffalo mm-hmm. um, so i i kind of like that one it was by an irish director that i uh, that i really like yeah. but yeah she uh, her kind of comfort zone is definitely the uh the period stuff yeah i don't know if she likes doing those films or if people just ask her to do those films all the time it's probably a bit of both yeah um it's just it's a really flat film i i, I don't think it's particularly entertaining it's definitely not going to get any awards buzz for her um even though people have praised her performance and it's definitely not as good as the favorite which is um the newest film by yorgos lanthimos it is important to make new friends in court is it not you're so beautiful stop it you mock me if i were a man i would ravish you (laughs) you have become close to abigail she is a viper you're jealous. Our favorite Greek director. Uh, I've heard of the favorite. I love Yorgos Lanthimos. Uh, yeah. Did, was it showing at TIFF? Uh, no, it wasn't. I don't think it was ready in time oh. or something. It, there were trailers coming out around about the time the TIFF was on and uh, and that kind of thing. But, uh, but yeah, it didn't have a showing here. Okay. Right off the bat, I can say that it's not nearly as good as his two previous films. Oh. Yeah. So that was um, Killing of a Sacred Deer. And what was the other one? The Lobster. The Lobster. Right. It's definitely not as weird. So the story is about um, Queen Anne, who is played beautifully by Olivia Coleman. She is going to get awards buzz for sure. She she was excellent. Oh, yeah. Okay. And 
it's about Rachel Weiss, who plays, I think she's like the Duchess of Marlborough or something like that. Yeah, one of those courtiers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And Emma Stone, who was, I think, like an aristocrat or something like that. And then she becomes a maid in the house and she kind of climbs through the ranks and it's uh, the rivalry between her and Rachel Weiss and they're trying to get into Queen Anne's good graces basically. It is part comedy, part drama. Um, Again, one of those films that's hard to define like a certain genre for it. It has that trademark staccato dialogue um, that you really have to listen carefully to catch some of the jokes and some of them are quite funny Sort of more more of the the kind of timing that uh, Lanthimos uses in his other films, or is it a bit different? Uh, no, it's it's quite quite similar. Um, it, it's it's a really sharp back and forth, quite quick. Oh yeah, I like that. Kind of West Wingish, but not really. Oh, some like walk and talk kind of stuff. A, a little bit, a little bit of walk and talk, or doing something and talking. It's split into I, I believe eight parts, and each part is kind of like a little vignette. And it draws out the rivalry between Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz. The problem with this film, though, is that anytime Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz aren't on the screen together, or if either of them aren't on the screen, it automatically becomes a less interesting movie. So it's definitely buoyed by their two performances and Olivia Colman. It's also one of those films, Lanthimos films, that kind of doesn't really have an ending. (laughs) Over, I think it's a two-hour runtime. So the first 90 minutes were really great. But the last 30 minutes kind of drags on where the rivalry is kind of settled. And I think he runs into the problem where he doesn't quite know how to end the film. Okay. So it just kind of ends abruptly. And you you almost sit there going like, wow, I'm glad that thirty last 30 minutes didn't drag on because it really could have sunk the film. Oh, yeah, okay. There are some ridiculous moments in it, as always with Lanthimos' films, but uh, the performance was great. The production design is definitely good. I don't know, I don't remember him doing this, but he uses the fisheye lens a lot in this film. Oh, interesting. Yeah, um, I couldn't quite figure out what he was trying to do, but it's there and it's apparent. I think Emma Stone really knocks it out of the park. She's she's really funny and, and quite dramatic in this one. Um, and this is another period film that I saw that had a lesbian relationship in it. <laughs> it's like a theme. And, yeah, and I was like, I, I, saw, I was watching this. I'm thinking to myself, I was like, when, when did period pieces have like lesbians in it as like a uh, uh, like a re- requirement? I feel, uh, it was just really funny to see. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it uh, because there's another one too. Um, uh, this one with uh, Chloe Savini and uh, Chris, uh, Kristen Stewart. That's um, it, it right. Didn't, didn't come to. T- but it's called uh, Lizzie, and it's again, right. it's another period film with a with a lesbian relationship at its core. Okay. I think maybe there's just a bit of a um, uh, a bit of a thing right now with uh, screenwriters and and movies in production where um, you know uh, LGBT films yes. is, that were more contemporary, like 20th century and beyond. Obviously, right. uh, had had a bit of a, a time in the sun, but um, I think some people are going back over. Uh, academic books and uh, and older works and kind of 
uh, saying that, hey, this isn't some 20th century development or anything. It's mm-hmm. uh, it, it's been happening through uh, uh, these relationships have been happening through all of human history, right? And, uh, you know, they've they color some of the some of the history that we think we know. It's at least a, a four out of five, maybe a four and a half out of five. I haven't really decided it, but I, I think it's worth seeing. I, I think you should go see it. Oh yeah, no, I was I was already planning to. I mean, uh, after okay. after enjoying uh, the lobster and uh, killing of a sacred deer, I uh, he I'm like becoming a uh, a Lanthimos fan for sure. Yeah, his his films kind of take a while to to like decompress and kind of unwind. Yeah, they're not for everybody. No, but thinking back, I almost feel like um, killing of a sacred deer is my favorite Lanthimos film. Oh yeah, I love the lobster, but I I really like slowly fallen in love with sacred deer it unfortunately doesn't have colin farrell but nicholas holt he's the male lead i guess or the male with the biggest part um he's quite funny in this and he kind of plays like an adversarial role um the plot itself isn't that interesting so that's why you watch it for vice and stone but the best film i saw so far at viff is shoplifters oh yeah the one that won uh, the palm d'Or at Cannes. yes okay so this is a japanese film um starting um lily frankie who is like this really talented japanese singer actor illustrator um jack of all trades type person and it's a bit of a slow burn film, but it's basically about this family that lives in this like shack in Tokyo. And to get by, he and his kid, Shota, um, they go and shoplift. And one day they meet this really young girl who comes from an abusive family and they end up adopting her without really telling anyone. And they live with their grandma and Lily Frankie's wife, I guess you could say, and another lady who is known just as the, uh, she's like the big sister. It's an interesting film. It takes a while to get going. It really does. That was maybe my one gripe because if it was edited so that they kind of bounced around in the timeline, kind of like Manchester by the sea, I think it could have been a little more effective Mm -hmm. because it starts slow and then it just like it hits the brakes in the middle when you when you discover the twist and then it just ramps up from there and it kind of turns into a different kind of movie the first part is a bit of a slow burn drama the second part almost feels like like i don't want to give too much away but almost like a criminal investigation type film where you're still trying to figure out what each character is about okay yeah so um if you know anything about, about japan like they're one of the countries, I think the only country actually, with a negative birth rate. So a lot of the plot revolves around this grandma who owns the shack and her relationships with all these people. Um, it explores a lot, but I, I think it's just worth watching just to see a different kind of um, a, a different kind of film. Um, that we're not used to seeing. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I um, I tried to uh, to see it at TIFF actually, but uh, the you know jimmying around the uh, the schedule uh, to account for all the stuff, I just uh, could not fit it in. But um, I will say though, like even though it won the Palm Door, um, very few films that have got, won the Palm Door like end up winning a lot at the Oscars, right? True. Yeah. Um, this is, I think, going to be nominated for best foreign language film. I would hesitate to say it would win. Because I, I do have certain issues about how it's structured and the pacing of the film, but it's, it's quite minor 
But at the same time, if this is the film, if this is the best film that VIF has to offer this year, um, I do think this year's festival is a little slightly weaker. Having seen the Florida Project last year, which I, I think blew me away. Right. Oh yeah, of course. I, oh, I remember when you were uh, we were talking about VIF, and uh, and yeah, Florida Project was uh, was fresh on your mind. And <laughs> yes, I, I do want to touch on one other other film, and that's um, Under the Silver Lake. Who moves out in the middle of the night? Nothing strange about it. She wanted to leave. How does that not make sense? I don't understand why she didn't tell me. Maybe she didn't like you. Maybe she knows you're poor and haven't paid your rent. Oh, yeah, because I was going to see that one with you if I had been able to continue on to uh, to Vancouver. Yes. This is a film by, I think his name's Robert David Mitchell or David Robert Mitchell. Yes, yeah, second one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. I can never get his name quite Those right. Those triple name dudes. Yeah, he's got like a horror film veteran type. And it stars Andrew Garfield as this basically burnout millennial in L.A., who meets this lovely neighbor played by the lovely Riley Keough. And after sort of like a romantic night, he wakes up the next day and she's gone, missing, disappeared, no clue whatsoever. And he kind of starts getting obsessed with this girl. So he goes on this um, kind of treasure hunt where he tries to be the amateur detective and figure out what's going on. And in a very, like, inherent vice kind of vibe, he kind of finds all these clues in the weirdest places. and Oh, yeah, and stumbles around and doesn't really... And stumbles around, yeah, and, and, and meets weird people, goes to weird places, goes to weird parties. Um, he ends up cracking the mystery. But my main issue with this film is that I found it terrifically boring. Oh, no. <laughs> I didn't find the characters interesting at all. So if you're comparing... Andrew Garfield to Joaquin Phoenix in Inherent Vice. I don't think there's any comparison that Inherent Vice is the far superior film and Phoenix is the far superior actor and and the character he plays is far more interesting. The plot itself, eh, I, I guess it's interesting. A lot of people who are into pop culture might like it a lot more, but it kind of just meanders and, the, and there's loose threads everywhere that, that don't make a lot of sense to me. That I, I also Honestly, I didn't care for any of it either. Um, so, and I, and probably to make the experience worse, I was in this theater called the Rio, which is kind of like a landmark in Vancouver because it's been around for so long. Like famously it's supported by like Ryan Reynolds who, who, and Kevin Smith. Oh yeah. Is it one of those kind of, um, old school movie palaces that's been done up a bit? Yeah, 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 exactly. And it's one of the few, I think it was the first theater actually to have a liquor license in Vancouver. Oh, cool. But anyway, like I went in and it was stuffy, it was hot. I was wearing jeans. I, I just I couldn't wait to get out of there. And it just the movie itself just made it worse. So I don't know if like the the venue made me dislike the movie more or if the movie was just really, really boring to me. But I I, I just I couldn't wait to get out. And once the credits came up and you're kind of it's one of those films that ends kind of on a cliffhanger where it leaves you thinking. I just, I, I didn't care. I, I just got out of there as fast as I could. <laughs> well, I mean. Mind uh, you, like a lot of people in the theater that I sat in apparently really liked it. So maybe I'm missing something or they're stupid. <laughs> they have no taste. Yeah, because it's, 
it's it, it, to me it's a bit of a mess of a film um i've ha- i have heard that the director had to like recut certain parts of it didn't you yeah that's what i heard as well it was scheduled for release um a little bit earlier this year i think they i don't think they were aiming for festival uh, season at all they were gonna bring it to you know a general kind of release of some sort okay. or maybe just a limited one um but then it's i think they did a test a couple test screenings and this the um the initial response was kind of poor so they uh, they turned around and uh they recut it so i'm not sure what they changed okay. well i'd hate um, to see the original version because if this i don't know if i saw the new or the old version but if this is the new version man the old version must be awful <laughs> like it's like if you're gonna watch this type it has a very inherent vice vibe but it also has the, the nice guys with russell crowe and ryan gosling that kind of vibe as well that kind of humor but it just it doesn't work for me it's not interesting it's not captivating it's not tense there's thriller elements in it but i just i didn't care for any of it mm, that's too bad well i mean i might uh, i might check it out on streaming when it becomes available yeah, just, and sort of see like yeah. is if i watch it from the comfort of my own couch will that uh uh will that kind of address some of the issues you were having with the venue uh, uh well yeah we'll have to report yeah, back on that if you're buzzing right now sorry it's cuz a plane is flying it's it's like circling right over your apartment yeah no well because like i'm close to the water and there are like helicopters and planes and stuff oh yeah and so once in a while you'll be able to hear it so if you guys hear it sorry about that extra sound effects exactly (laughs) okay that's not Um, the sound a plane makes but you know what i'm saying yeah yeah yeah. well i mean that uh it, it sounds like you've kind of had a a mediocre entry into into the festival so far um so far so far but uh, but for, for my part, like uh, this year's this year's run at TIFF was was pretty strong. I would say it wasn't quite as full of possible buzz making kind of movies as uh, my experience was last. Festival. Yeah. Do you think it's because this year has been weak or is it because all the good stuff hasn't come out yet? Because we we've got a lot of stuff coming out. I, it might be it might be the latter. Actually, there's there's a lot of good stuff coming out and, and like. To be honest, um, I'm trying whenever I'm trying to like fill out my roster at uh, TIFF, I'm trying to avoid the movies that I know are going to open wide in a couple yeah, of weeks fair after TIFF anyway, um, because there's like, you know, these festivals, especially with TIFF, because of the selection that they bring um, they're in many cases, they're screening stuff that's going to be really hard to get. Uh, later on, like it'll, it'll never open in Canada again uh, on a big screen. And it may even be hard to order the Blu-ray on Amazon. Cause it'll be like, you know, a uh-huh. $60 import or something. Um, so it's not, you know, not something you really want to gamble on. Um, so yeah, I try, you know, stuff like first man or, um, first man is uh, such Oscar bait. <laughs> yeah. It's Oscar bait, but like, I'm not going to see uh first man or a star is born or any of those things at TIFF, even though they're showing there. Right. Um, yes. so what I did end up seeing, though, was uh, the the movie that's actually probably the closest competitor to Shoplifters, and that would be uh, Burning, um, a Korean oh, film. Oh, I haven't seen that yet. I see that Sunday. Oh, really? Okay, so we'll have to we'll have to circle back on that one, maybe. Uh, so I won't I won't go too deep into it now. But it's interesting that you mentioned the the two part structure of Shoplifters because I feel like Burning has a lot in common with that. Okay. Um, so uh, yeah, maybe we'll have to circle around on that. But then some of the other things I ended up seeing were uh, um, Alfonso Cuaron's film Roma. (laughs) 
it's going to be a wide release, but it's it is a Netflix uh, acquisition, so it's going to uh, it's going to pop up on Netflix in November, I believe. Okay, and how was that? It was beautiful. Oh, it's uh, shot shot in black and white. Um, Quaron is like he it's he's coming back and telling a story in uh, 1970s Mexico, kind of a uh, inspired by his own life, but um, it's not entirely clear which character in the movie he's supposed to be. But uh, mm-hmm. you kind of think that maybe he's one of the children uh, in the family that forms the uh, uh, central group of characters in the movie. Uh, okay, but the the main story is a r- set around the the maid or the live in housekeeper uh, that works for this family, uh, and they live in Mexico City. The dad is a university professor. Uh, the mom is also, I think, an academic of some kind, and they live in this kind of walled compound uh, in Mexico City. And uh-huh. the movie just kind of depicts a year in the life of this family. Um, kind of coming and going through this busy house. The dog's always trying to get out into the street. Um, the dad and the mom fight over things. Uh, the And then the maid is kind of observing all of this coming and going and having uh, dramas of her own, you know, uh, a disagreement with her boyfriend and a pregnancy that she didn't expect. This sounds and like a BBC period uh, TV show. <laughs> yeah. So I guess, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're not wrong. But, um, but no, the way, the way Coron kind of, immerses you in it and the cinematography Mm -hmm. and the uh, kind of just the depth of the observations that he's making. um, You just get totally lost in it. And it's a long movie. It's like two and a half hours long, but um, yeah, so it's a bit of a commitment, but the, I don't know. I think it's, it's definitely going to be, Mexico's submission for uh, best foreign language okay. film and I highly recommend it you know even if you like end up waiting for it to hit Netflix and you split it up over the course of a couple of nights it's definitely worth it two films I want to ask you about actually oh, okay I don't know if I watched them but but shoot well yeah you have because I'm stalking your letterbox oh. right <laughs> okay uh, widows my husband left me the plans for his next job all I need is a crew to pull it off. Why should we trust you anyway? Because I'm the only one standing between you and a bullet in your head. Widows, yeah. So I ranked that number four out of the 15 that I saw. 15? Holy crap. Okay, so what was great and not so good about Widows? So Widows was really strong. I mean, uh, we've never seen... This is Steve McQueen uh, writing and directing uh, previously for movies yeah, like... Yeah, he's fantastic. Um, Shame and Hunger, 12 Years a Slave. You know, he's... Uh, uh, he did really well at the Oscars with that most recent film, 12 Years a Slave. But now he's tackling a genre that we've never really seen him try before, and that that of the heist movie. And this is a movie set in Boston depicting the a heist that goes wrong and how the widows of the three guys implicated in the heist who, uh, who die, how they have to pick up the pieces of the heist and try to complete it or complete the, the next heist that was planned. Um, in an effort to uh, pay down the uh, their husband's creditors, oh, and then it okay. works. It we weaves in like stories about the the local political race that's happening there, the municipal race, and uh, how the 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 local politicians who are corrupt are tied into the lives of these criminals, and uh, um, you know. The three women played by Viola Davis, um, Elizabeth Debicki, and uh, Michelle Rodriguez are not. criminally savvy, you know, they were just kind of observers to their husband's activities, so they have to try to figure out how to pull off a really brazen heist with no training. So this isn't some, like, Ocean's Eleven kind of of deal where you've got, like, pro-criminals who are just slickly 
uh, going through the motions. Oh, nice. And it is just is fantastically acted. Uh, Daniel Kalua from uh, Get Out and Black Panther. He plays a absolutely twisted villain. Just like yeah, this, you know he's bad news the second he get he comes into frame before he's ever done anything, and uh, uh, it, that just carries on through right to the end. All sorts of other great people in this: uh, Liam Neeson, Robert Duvall, Colin Farrell. Yes, Colin Farrell. Yeah, uh, it's just it's just overflowing with great talent. Um, beautifully shot, really tense. The the heist itself, you uh, the McQueen keeps you waiting for it for a very long time. And when he actually de- depicts it, it's super fast compared to you know what you typically expect from the, the heist genre in general. Um, so it just kind of goes and then you're on to the consequences. So I have to say for Steve McQueen, he is one of those directors that has like a really good feel for how his audience is feeling. I've never ever um, felt his films were boring or slow. Like his pacing is really good, eh? Oh yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think that works for him in the heist uh, movie uh, yes. specifically. But yeah, the uh, you think back about 12 Years a Slave and how... You know, he really made you understand the implications of that 12 years that Chabatel Ejiofor's character spends as a slave, like the the way he used music and film editing to to draw it out and kind of make you say, oh, wow, okay, he's not just a, you know, this is a free man who is subjected to this horrific thing for a really long period of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the other one I actually wanted to watch or ask you about, and I'm going to watch this on the last day of VIF, is The Front Runner. We can't hide from this. The cameras go everywhere. It's up to us to hold these guys accountable. Just because some other paper used gossip as front page news, I mean, that doesn't mean we have to. It does. It does now. Oh, yeah. So this is the new movie from uh, Jason Reitman. Most people will know from movies like Juno and Up in the Air. He's a Canadian filmmaker. Go Canada. Agreed. Uh, so I've, I'm, I'm always, I'm always uh, happy to see a new movie from Jason Reitman. He's had a, he's had a few misfires. I'm, I agree. I'm still a, uh, <laughs> I'm still a defender of uh, his movie from I think it was 2014, uh, Men, Women, and Children. Um, he got a, he got a bad rap on that one for kind of making what some people felt was a bit of a, um, a hand wringing kind of movie about internet culture and the way parents deal with kids on the internet. Uh, that's um, another theme these days, a eh? internet culture. That's yeah. Like- so, and so like that one, you know, I, I still really believe that there's, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of good stuff in that movie that people can, may, may have misread. Um, but here in the front runner, he's doing a political history film. Yes. And he's uh, going, getting into the uh, presidential campaign of uh, Gary Hart, uh, who ran for president in the 80s. Yes. And um, he was the, as the, the title suggests, the front runner for the Democratic ticket. Senator from Colorado, who's like super handsome, really all about the policy. Um, you know, he's got lots of very progressive ideas for what he wants to do as president, but he doesn't ever want to talk about his family or anything that's like intimate to him. To him, that's like, you know, politicians should be focusing on the issues. They should not be talking about themselves. And this gets him into trouble because it kind of uh, uh, it encourages reporters to wonder, well, if he doesn't want to talk about personal stuff, what's he hiding? Uh-huh. And then it turns out that there's a, a long list of affairs that right. uh, he's, yes. he's been covering up. And the, the movie kind of explores 
all right, you know, this, this is the eighties we're in now, not the sixties, you know, in the sixties, America kind of tolerated the fact that JFK, for example, had a lot of mistresses. Mm -hmm. Some of them, you know, a lot of the affairs happened in the White House and it was just kind of people look the other way. But now in the 80s, people seem to take that kind of stuff a little bit more seriously as if it's like um, it's a commentary, like a a candidate having an affair is a commentary on their moral values. Mm -hmm. And uh, the movie kind of it wants to it wants to kind of ask uh, ask that question, maybe even kind of make a statement about where we are right now as a people and the way we handle our politicians in 2018. So yeah, I can't, can't say it, it really makes a, a solid argument one way or the other, okay. but, uh, but I kind of liked it. Was it preachy though? Um, there were a few speeches in there, but nothing, nothing too kind of banging you over the head with a particular, uh, okay. uh, idea. I think a few, few people got kind of annoyed because it felt a little bit paint by numbers when it comes to that type of movie, you know, uh, mm. an ensemble piece about politics, about a campaign. There's a lot of characters in it. You know, it can be hard to keep track of what, what roles everybody has in the, in each other's campaigns okay. and all that stuff. But yeah, I like Hugh Jackman in it. He's the lead as Gary Hart, um, lots of other great performers in it. Um, so if you go in for these kind of political slash journalism uh-huh. movies uh it's it's not a uh not a not one you want to miss so of all the films that you saw at tiff was there any performance or film that made you think it was awards worthy roma definitely just for the cinematography and directing widows also i think might might have a bit of a showing but it's hard to know what categories it'll go for maybe picture i don't know so, I mean, as for some of the other stuff I saw that might be awards-worthy, I mean, you have The Old Man and the Gun uh, from David Lowry. This is right, Robert Redford. Robert Redford's last film. Very good stuff, very enjoyable, big crowd-pleaser type of a movie. I was going to go see it. I couldn't figure it out in my schedule, though. But I've I've also heard that Robert Redford isn't exactly retired. I think oh, he yeah. walked, back, walked back to his comments after. Yeah, he I mean said that's that. not entirely that's not entirely uh, unexpected given how energetic he is in this one. I mean, he's okay. uh, and you know how he's he's the dude's still got a lot of energy for his all his other projects. So right, yeah. the sisters brothers. We're the sisters brothers. S i s t e r s, like sisters. We're looking for a man named Warm. Stole something from our employer. We have enough money to stop for good. Stop what? Killing people. <laughs> yeah, right. The Sisters Brothers, I really liked. It was very unexpected, though. Um, a Western movie. In what sense? Um, it's a Western, and it's directed by a French guy, um, Jacques Odiard. And uh-huh. uh, apparently Jacques Odiard is a big name in French cinema. Like he's, he's like, uh, right. Okay. People, people really like his stuff. But so this is his first movie in English and he's got Joaquin Phoenix and John C. Riley playing a pair of brothers whose last name is sisters. Okay. Sisters yep. brothers. And it's kind of, it kind of charts their ambling kind of ass backwards kind of <laughs> way of being, of being mercenaries in, uh, in Oregon in the, uh, uh 1850s, 1860s. Okay. Um, so the, the thing that makes it kind of an unexpected ride is the, the fact that uh, unlike a typical Western where, you know, you set up your anti-heroes, you give them some crowd of characters who are a lot worse than them, um, morality wise. And eventually it all comes to blows in a big gunfight towards the end of the movie. This one isn't really like that. It, it has these, these two anti-heroes, you know, obviously they're not the greatest dudes in the world cause they, you know, wantonly murder and, uh, booze things up, booze up and all that stuff. But they, uh, 
they're told by their employer, played by Rucker Hauer, to uh, go after this prospector, played by uh, Riz Ahmed, who apparently has this formula for uh, panning for gold that, uh, that will make it way easier to find the gold in the riverbed. And uh, they have to track him across all this, this open territory and then team up with this um, private investigator played by Jake Gyllenhaal uh, to track this prospector down. And what comes over the course of their search and, you know, um, the, the various changing alliances between the, the brothers and the other characters um, is a lot of, like, introspection. The brothers spend a lot of time talking about their relationship, their relationship with their father, um, the way they feel about things, you know, their inner thoughts. It's, so it spends a lot of time talking about, you know, things or just talking in general, which, you know, to be honest, in Western films, Uh we don't really see a lot of. It tends to be more action-focused. So it's it's kind of a nice change of pace. There's still plenty of violence. There's a a little bit of of a few gunfights, you know. Uh, There's a kind of a a slightly disturbing scene towards the the end when they uh, they finally discover uh, the implications of how Riz Ahmed's secret formula works. Like gory? Not... Well, yeah, a little bit gory, actually. Yeah, so oh, okay. uh, it's got to All do right. with chemicals and stuff. But um, oh god, yeah. Okay. So it uh, it kind of goes down that road. But I would I would definitely recommend it. It um, it's especially if you like the, the the western genre and you want something a little bit different. Yeah, that was another film I I wanted to see here at VIF, but I, I just couldn't fit, fit into the schedule. And I took into account that you already saw these films, so I can always just ask you. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> um, I feel like it's better that way if I see something that you haven't seen and that you have seen that I haven't seen. Obviously, it's great to like compare notes or and whatnot. Sure. But, I mean, eventually I'll see all these, but at, at these festivals, I, I want to catch the, the films that uh, that are a little, little more limited. Yeah, so, yeah. Have, well, um, yeah, so we cover all our bases. <laughs> I mean, we I could keep talking forever about all the stuff I saw because, you know, again, it was 15 movies. Uh, there's, the, the, yeah, there's something to yeah. say about each one. Um, but I will give you uh, a quick rundown on, on the uh, the worst one I saw. Oh, yes. That was my next question. You, I oh, love really? it. Well, because, yeah, because, you know, Rob, I always love asking you about what you think is terrible. <laughs> oh, yeah. This, this is a candidate. Um so this uh, this movie is called Out of Blue. Out of Blue. Um, two out of, two out of five make, stars for you. Yeah, I, honestly, I should have gone lower, but uh, in retrospect. But uh, first of all, the title doesn't make any sense. Where's the the? Oh, <laughs> you know, well, why why isn't it Out of the Blue? You know, I mean, come on. Um, so this is a this is a movie that it stars uh, Patricia Clarkson. Do you know uh, Do you know her? Yeah, of course. Yeah, so I mean, she's 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 a little, great, actually. Yeah, she's a character actress. I mean, she's not somebody that all the average person on the street would uh, uh, would be able to place. But I think movie buffs are pretty familiar with her because she's got a history of playing like she's got. A, yeah, I was gonna say yeah, moms and uh, military officers and like sort of people who are uh, uh, kind of strong willed women who are uh, uh, secondary to the the main characters in a given movie, but also a little tired of everything. A strong character that's worn down. Yeah, that's that's a good description. So here she's kind of uh, doing a bit of a career shift in the sense that she's actually leading a film for once. And she's playing a, uh, a detective in New Orleans uh, in, like, I guess post-Katrina, so like post-2005. But uh, it's not entirely clear when the movie is set. Um, all we know is that there's like rolling blackouts going on throughout the movie that are poorly explained. They never say whether it's to do with like the hurricane or something. And 
the movie is kind of like it takes the the concept of a typical noir film with like a solo lone wolf style detective trying to crack a cold murder case and blends it with astrophysics. Okay. Um, so you've got, uh, and this is why I kind of selected it because I was, I was a little bit uh, intrigued by the, the, the weirdness of the premise. Um, so Patricia Clarkson's detective character has to solve the murder of an astrophysicist played by Mamie Gummer, uh, one of Meryl Streep's kids. The this leads her on this kind of strange path through like events that are cosmically linked and um, a uh, her own childhood which she can't remember. She's like an amnesiac, uh, but you don't really you, you're never really told that she is an amnesiac. It's just kind of all very hazy. And boy, is this movie hard to watch. It's <laughs> it sounds complicated already. It's like, uh, but the stupid thing is that the plot is not that complicated. Like the resolution of the murder is really not that complicated. You just always feel like the, um, the movie is just holding back information. It, you know, and it's just going to reveal it in a very cliched manner. You know, there's going to be a few red herrings along the way. And then the detective is going to have the light bulb moment and, you know, the murder is solved. Um, so then it tries to move, the movie tries to be a little bit more complicated by working in this backstory to the detective and making that the, is that the real mystery? Like who was she all the, all along? This kind of reminds me of under the silver lake, to be honest. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a little bit. Um, so the movie is like, I don't know, it's maybe an hour and 40, but it feels like two and a half hours. Oh, those are um, the worst. It like you're you're just literally looking at your watch. Patricia Clarkson does her best, but the I don't think it's her fault. I think the script is just completely impenetrable. Um, it's full of really weird character moments, characters that yell for no reason. Um, <laughs> the 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 footage, the actual like visuals are they kind of alternates between like as if a film student uh, was giving their, their first attempt at like a, a really pretty first film, but it ends up looking like a uh, late night comedy special short. Um, okay. It's, it's just like it, it's it like the footage is really colorful, but this, the sets are really boring and they look like Saturday night lives backgrounds. The main character is just a complete cipher. she, Ugh, it just, it's this horrific, um, monstrous blob of stuff. And I challenge anyone to track it down and tell me what I'm missing here because it, uh, ah, that's too bad. I do like Patricia Clarkson. She's in that like Laura Dern level yeah, yeah. of actresses for me where like they really hung around for a long time and they consistently put in really good performances it was kind of weird to see Patricia Clarkson highlighting like a police crime type <laughs> movie. It just it doesn't seem like something she'd normally go for. But hey, yeah, this is why you go to TIFF. You know, you never know what you're going to see. Exactly, you never know. Uh, because I teased it in the in the opening, I thought I'd I'd talk uh, about this thing that's kind of been uh, irritating me about Netflix yes. recently, um, and their approach to festival movies. And I don't know, maybe this is me being old fashioned, but <laughs> probably, I, <laughs> probably. But I, you know, obviously Netflix is a big entertainment company, and they're they got to go where the business is, and they've decided that they've got to start snapping up these festival movies. Um, you know, when they hit the market and scheduling. Uh, various uh, streaming dates for them. And I don't know, it's kind of, it's kind of bumming me out that Netflix is 
doing so well in this space. They seem to gobble up like a solid handful of some of the best or the most interesting titles before they come to festivals. And you end up like feeling like you're watching Netflix in public where you sit down to a festival movie and you get the Netflix logo off the top and you're like, man, I could have, why did I waste $25 or $20 on this ticket? I, if I could have just waited a few weeks and it was going to be at home. Although I was going to say, there's something to be said about watching something on a big screen though. True. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I would almost be happier if like a traditional distributor or like not necessarily a big studio like Fox or Disney or something like that, but a, uh, an indie distributor like A24 or um, Annapurna picked it up instead. But I guess, you know, Netflix is kind of in that category with, with those indie distributors now and they, they're making very lucrative bids for some of these things. Mm-hmm. And then like, you know, they'll, they will schedule that streaming date. And then they keep saying, oh yeah, we're going to bring this to theaters normally after the festival. And there'll still be a chance to see it on the big screen before you get it as part of your membership. But I feel like they're doing that more in the States. They're being kind of timid about it. We're not seeing those kind of screenings in Canada. So it's just, uh, I don't know. I, I, uh, I feel like we're in a bit of a transitional period uh, where they haven't fully achieved what they're planning. Um, but in this kind of time where they're figuring things out, it, uh, it makes me feel like I'm wasting my money. Uh, a bit. Well, I'll tell you what's a bigger waste. What will be a bigger waste of my money is with all these streaming websites and streaming apps. We're going back to cable, aren't we? Basically, yeah. I mean, you look at... Like, it sucks, man. I was reading this article about how, like, torrenting has become much popular again. Yeah. Because people just refuse to pay so much money for different streams and exclusive content. Yep. And you're just like, man, we're never going to break out of this cycle, eh? (laughs) Like, all these, like, companies and telecom companies, just, like, they want everything to be exclusive. They want them to be your only um, expense or a customer or whatever. And I think it just drives everyone nuts. Well, it doesn't drive everyone nuts, though, because, I mean, I feel like we're we're very sensitive to this stuff because we're, uh, you know, watching the industry uh, uh, pretty hard. But then, uh, you know, your average consumers out there and they're like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to sign up for another one of things. I got to get that show. That I, I think that's watch. changing. I, I think some people are unwilling to splurge on those um, different streams, especially if they don't have any particularly good IPs. Um, I just overheard on the radio today someone um, bitching about how Amazon doesn't have anything good, which is I untrue. I disagree, but I see their point because isn't Apple having a lot of trouble developing their own IPs? A little bit, yeah. I mean, they've made some interesting purchases and they've uh, hired some yeah. personalities to to develop stuff for them. But uh, but right now, I think their pickings are very slim compared to their competitors. Yeah, and I mean, Amazon has the rights to the Tolkien stuff, right? Tolkien. Yeah, and they're they're working on that. So uh, and now Netflix has uh, they announced uh, yesterday or the day before that they're going to uh, take on the Narnia properties. Oh yeah, so I saw be, that. Yes, it's going to be a big fantasy fight uh, in the in the coming years. Yeah, I'm, I'm tired of all these reboots, Rob. Like I get I get fatigued. I think quicker than most people. But I man, I'm already getting to my limit. Like I I, I don't want to see a reboot. I don't want to see a remake. Like give me something truly original. The, and the thing that's getting me is like we're getting it's getting so siloed off. So like you're getting uh, you're going to have the Disney streaming service that will just be 
uh, Disney movies for kids. And they can't even have Star Wars until like 2022 or whatever it is. Yeah. Well, John Favreau has just announced the, that he's doing this. Uh, well, everyone knew he was already working on it, but then he announced the the title of the thing and released a first image and a brief plot description of what what's being called the Mandalorian, which is going to be a Western influenced gunslinger set in the world of Star Wars kind mm-hmm. of movie, which, you know, to me, that sounds amazing that like I, I really want to watch that. Uh, but it's going to be an exclusive to Disney. So do I really like how much do I really care to get that one show? Yes. And, you know, the few uh, the few other things that they'll have available, uh, they'll probably have more Marvel products on that service as well. Don't really want the extra 10 bucks a month. <laughs> it's, it's definitely a property. The Star Wars TV show, The Mandalorian, it's going to be uh, uh, it's like crack for the, the Star Wars fans who love the Boba Fett character and they want another character like that. Um you know, and there's never been a live action Star Wars TV show before. So it's got a lot of it got a lot of promise. But yeah, you can't do you get over that hump? Do you decide to add that to your credit card bill? Yeah, uh, that's going to be a, a big uh, decider, I think. And then I guess a bit down the road, too. I mean, we're probably going to be in this world of like the various streaming services starting to eat each other where they'll they'll actually start making acquisitions. They'll start like gobbling each other up. That That's when, you know, they're really out of ideas when they start gobbling each other up. And the other thing I miss out on too, and again, this is probably my age speaking um, more than anything. This golden era of, of TV first got started back in like, I would say, you know, around HBO probably started it with stuff like the wire and the Sopranos. And um, then you had on network TV, you had lost come along in 2004 Back then, there was still like a lot of commonality between what people were watching. And now it's hard to find anybody in like your office or with your friend group who has watched the same thing as you have. And everyone's a fan of their own little handful of specific things. And sometimes there's a bit of crossover. You know, you get a really big show like Game of Thrones that everyone watches or something like that. I don't know. We're, we're, we're divided people in this cultural landscape. Yeah, to say the least. <laughs> did you? And well, I mean, this and this just popped into my head because of the Star Wars connection. But did you see how uh, apparently it was Russian trolls that were uh, providing about fifty percent of the hate towards yes. the Last Jedi? Yes, online? I did see that. That, that. that headline gave me a bit of a chuckle. I, like it makes me feel good, but also it bums me out a bit. Why does it bum you out? Just that, like. Why are the Russians care? Because they're undermining and and is it subversion of the American pop culture and American politics? I guess so. And it, it, honestly, like in North America, like pop culture is a huge thing, but it's not like this anywhere else in my experience. Like this meme stuff. Oh, the meme stuff. Yeah, don't um, get me started on yeah, that. Yeah, the meme stuff, all the social media stuff, all this like celebrity beef and all these like all the stuff that comes with pop culture and how it like informs our social consciousness. Like I I don't really feel it anywhere else. It might be just because like it's so pervasive in North America, like Hollywood's everywhere, like entertainment and media is everywhere. But it's not the same in a lot of Asian countries or even in Europe where I feel like um, they're just more worried about other things they get outside more often yeah that's part of it like escapism is is so huge in north america i it's it's kind of weird someone should do a study about pop culture and and how much of an impact it has on our society you know yeah if they haven't already but i mean yeah it's uh yeah that's true it's yeah, yeah the, the it's almost like um 
we've created a, a toxic social fabric that people need to flee from. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Like we've created this social media technology monster and we don't know how to deal with it. And and the Russians, they, hey, to the Russians' credit, they're freaking smart about this stuff, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, on that very uplifting note, maybe we'll, we'll end the, the episode right there. So head on over to kinetoscope.ca where I've posted uh, four fresh reviews. Well, not so fresh reviews now. Uh, four reviews of uh, some of the stuff that I saw at TIFF if you want to explore that in a bit more detail. Um, and I think Jason might be posting some stuff about VIF uh, if he gets a chance in the, yes. uh, the coming days. Uh, so keep an eye out for that. For sure. So until the next time, my name is Robert Snow in Toronto. And my name is Jason Chen in Vancouver. Thank you for listening. <laughs>